Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Emil Hakayem about competing perspectives on the United States in the Middle East. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about competing visions of the United States and how they might influence each other. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Emil Hakayem is a senior fellow for the Middle East at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. He grew up in Lebanon, in France, spent a bunch of time in the United States. We first met working on arms control in the Middle East about 15 years ago. Emil, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much, John. Uh, happy to uh, reconnect after all these years. How have Middle Eastern views of the United States changed in the last year? You talk to people, you travel in the region. What's changed? I think it has changed in many ways, and it really depends on who you talk to, where, and under what context. At the popular level, the U.S. is still a quite unpopular actor in the region. But typically, these are complicated sentiments. The U.S. is unpopular because of its perceived slights to the region. But at the same time, there's still a degree of respect for the country its ability to go through crisis, reinvent itself. The people I know who are very harsh on the U.S. also want to move to the U.S. if given a green card. I know it sounds cliche, but it's also true. I've met a lot of people who have very conflicting views. Now, at an elite level, however, things are more complicated. There were always questions about U.S. strategic wisdom. Why does it decide to do some things that, at least at an elite level, make no sense. And the Iraq war is a typical example. Why do you undertake this massive operation that is strategically, morally, politically, not just controversial, but completely misguided at an enormous cost to the region and themselves? What has happened over time is that there were questions about U.S. operational competence. And I can tell you, talking to people while watching the Afghanistan withdrawal, the question of competence was on everyone's mind. It wasn't really about how evil the U.S. is. It was, how can you get something like that wrong? There are genuine questions about how competent. And then there are other questions now about U.S. strategic priorities, that it no longer cares about the region And so it will make any deal with anyone to offload it. It's a view that's sometimes prevalent among those who think that any U.S. diplomacy with Iran is meant to essentially help the U.S. wash its hands of the region, pack and leave. Obviously, American officials or other Middle Eastern officials would push back against this idea, but it's there. So the views exist across a very, very broad spectrum But I would say that there's certainly a couple of milestones. The Bush administration, the Iraq war, you had his own views on Middle Eastern democratization and all the charges about U.S. hypocrisy. Then you had the Obama Cairo speech and the sense of a renewal. And then the reality that Obama was a much more calculating, very realist, almost cynical president when it came to the Middle East. 
then to the pandemic under Trump, where it was difficult to understand what U.S. policy was about, except transactional deals and bombast. Seen from the region, the U.S., contrary to some other actors, especially Russia and China, because of changes in leadership, because of all the ups and downs of democratic systems, looks like a tired, sometimes unreliable actor. Now, the Biden administration has talked about taking a much less security-focused view of the region. You've talked about how it's complicated shifting from the security-focused diplomacy we've had for decades. What impact does the Biden administration's emphasis on diminishing the security component of regional strategy, what impact does that have on the Middle East? Views here differ massively. There are those who say it's a ploy, the U.S. is not really changing. It says it wants to play a lesser security role in the region, but it's not going to change its defense and military presence in the region. So it's just licking its wounds in Afghanistan and Iraq, but it's still ready to intervene if it needs to. There are others who look at that and see this with great concern about the kind of strategic quid pro quos and trade-offs that the U.S. could enter with regional powers or global powers. My point about Iran is one that I have to say is shared quite widely, that the U.S., if it finds a modus vivendi with Iran, will somehow forget about Gulf security. There are others who think that the U.S. is entangled in local relationships like the Kurdish-dominated SDF in Syria or other Iraqi factions and essentially is sucked into local situations with no real perspective or no real prospect of coming on top. So I would say that at an elite level, there is a lot of anxiety about what Washington has in store. I often tell them, I don't think Washington knows exactly what it wants to do. It has all of those broad strategic goals. It would like to spend less political capital, less time, fewer resources on the region. But the reality is that it can get sucked in very quickly. And the U.S. hasn't ended its arms sales to the region. It has suspended some here and there. But it hasn't completely resought its defense diplomacy in the region. It hasn't started to close bases. So we're not yet at a point where the U.S. has extricated itself from the region. It is still the preferred security partner. It is the ultimate security guarantor. These things haven't changed. It's really a question of how wise and how competent the U.S. is at this point. These are the big questions on the table. In your view, is it right for the United States to take a less security-focused approach to the region? And what would a more diplomatic or economic or cultural approach really look like if the U.S. were to put a big emphasis on those aspects? I understand why many in Washington want to see the U.S. play a lesser security role in the region. I think, however, that the U.S., although it can right-size its role, cannot completely drop that role. Because the danger is that by doing so, the U.S. will exacerbate local anxieties or create strategic vacuums. I still think the U.S. has a 
good role to play as a stabilizer. But it really depends on who is in the White House. It depends on events as well. No one expected that George W. Bush, when he was elected president, would jump into the Middle East the way he did. And 9-11 happened and it changed everything. I suspect that other presidents also are quite reluctant to play that role. But I think the U.S. still has a restraining role on security actors. At times, it hasn't used its influence. At times, it has forgotten that it has more leverage on the local parties than the local parties have on Washington. And I think that's partly because the military dimension of the relationship tends to be the dominant one. The Gulf states don't have real alternatives in the foreseeable future to the U.S., Yes, they will flirt with China, they will flirt with Russia, but no one offers the suite of guarantees and services and reassurance that the U.S. does. The question is really whether the U.S. is interested in playing an ordering role in the region or just wants to deal with those issues on a discrete basis. And that's what worries me. If Biden only wants to do counterterrorism and a nuclear deal with Iran, that's a very narrow approach to the region that is not going to create the basis for regional stability. And it will lock the U.S. into some security roles that are not necessarily conducive to greater political dialogue in the region. Fundamentally, reassurance is a very, very difficult thing to do. How to reassure your partners, how to make sure that they are not freaking out, how to make sure that they're not taking you for granted, how to reassure them that this military exercise is not meant to lead to a further escalation. I can understand the difficulty of that in DC. This is why I'm very happy I'm not American or a policymaker, because I don't envy those who have to do that. We haven't talked at all about the energy transition and the likelihood that sometime over the next 50 years, the world is not going to be reliant on the Middle East for energy, the way the Middle East fits into the world and global security is going to be different. The Middle East will not be synonymous with global energy security. What impacts do you think the energy transition will have? And when do you think we'll start to see something and say that's a consequence of the global energy transition? This is probably the biggest structural challenge on the horizon for all producing Middle Eastern states. Their global relevance, their wealth, their centrality to global security has to do with fossil fuels. And it's very difficult at every level to accept that this soon may not be the case. In the short term, I suspect a number of Middle Eastern countries say, you know what, it's still a few decades down the road. Let's make the most out of it. But the energy transition supercharges the fundamental dilemma for the Gulf state, which is that their security lies in the West. Their economic prosperity is in the East. And so they're trying to reorient themselves. But it's, it's a very tricky dance. And I don't necessarily think that all the leaderships across the region have understood the medium and long-term implications of that in terms of the ability of the state to provide the jobs and sustain those social economic benefits and, and incentives that they've offered their population. 
I don't necessarily see the, this level of awareness. You're talking about energy transition. I would say that it's even more so the case when it comes to climate change and its consequences in the region. I think the levels of resilience and preparedness are quite low because that awareness is not there yet. From a strategic perspective, the Middle Eastern states think that they are strategic not just because of oil. The issues of great power competition is going to unfold in the Middle East. Therefore, the U.S. will have to be invested here. Great infrastructure projects like the Chinese BRI and whatever will go deep into the Middle East. Therefore, the U.S. will have to be engaged here. That technology transfers will come to the Middle East and the U.S. will have to be engaged there. That, you know, proliferation is going to happen. Iran is already nuclear capable. Later, the other countries may jump on the strain. Therefore, the U.S. will have to be engaged. I think that misses the new thinking, not just in Washington, but elsewhere, that dealing with the challenges ahead, whether it's pandemics or climate change, will require very difficult choices. And that the Middle East is a place where you never win. You just manage problems. And that perhaps the cost of managing conflicts and tensions is not worth it. But you suggest that they're not really contemplating a step change in American commitment to stabilizing the region. This is a region that's very sensitive to global shifts in power. And every time I visit any city, any capital in the region, I get this. I, I get the questions about, has China overtaken the U.S.? Have you seen this latest report on Chinese naval capabilities? Have you seen this new Russian supersonic missile? There is a lot of attention to what's happening inside the U.S., the 2008 financial crisis was a big turning point. The Trump presidency, internal political tensions. Political... So all this is on their mind constantly. And so they're always trying to see whether they are alternatives. But no one at the moment and for the foreseeable future has the will, the capability, the infrastructure and the know-how to be a dominant security actor in the region. So... After frenzy times, things cool down and it's like, okay, the U.S. remains that. But I would say that even then, managing that anxiety, which sometimes can be irrational, but sometimes is quite legitimate, is not something Washington should shy away from. Dealing with the U.S., if you're sitting in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi or elsewhere, it's a complicated proposition. And I think it's even more so now that it's increasingly clear that the U.S. is going to make dealings with China a topic of conversation for them. So what technology are you buying? What are you deploying next to the F-35s that we may sell you? Why are you negotiating the purchase of S-400s from Russia? Are you not understanding that we as your security provider require that you be mindful and protective and appreciative of our presence and our commitment at the same time, the others are saying, well, we have to hedge. I think they're entering very tricky territory. A couple of years ago, in a conversation you had with our mutual friend, Corey Shockey, you said, Americans aren't Machiavellian. Americans are idealistic, naive, and at one level, incompetent. How does that shape how Middle Eastern states engage with the United States? This sense that maybe the U.S. is just profoundly incompetent? How should either a sense that the U.S. isn't as competent as it wants to be or 
a sense that Middle Eastern states think the U.S. is incompetent shape what the U.S. does and what it seeks to do in the Middle East? Let me be clear. I think I'm in the minority. I think most people in the region at this point see the U.S. as Machiavellian and incompetent. But, you know, the part about idealistic and naive, that's essentially me and my experience in Washington. It was quite striking for me that Americans are well-intentioned, they want in, and then they don't realize necessarily what they're getting into, what they're creating, the entanglements that they unintentionally sometimes create and end up owning. I remember that discussion back in 2002 in the run-up to the Iraq war, where a classmate of mine basically told me, of course we can get Iraq right. We sent a man to the moon. I think for Washington, there's this massive dilemma. And I agree with critics of U.S. presence in the region that there's never a hard win for the U.S. I don't think policymakers in D.C. will ever be satisfied in their dealings with the region. They always feel that the expectations placed on them are unrealistic, that they're asked to mediate between parties that are at odds with each other, that if they welcome, you know, a Muslim Brotherhood government in this or that country because it's been voted in power, Washington gets accused of being pro-Islamist. That won't change. But at the strategic level, in terms of constraining states, in terms of their choices on defense, on security policy, on interventions in the region, the U.S. will remain key. Yemen right now, there was massive pressure on all parts of the U.S. system to essentially extricate the U.S. out of this, you know, association with Saudi Arabia in the hope that this would generate a political process. But the approach was and remains quite problematic. Saudi is a very problematic actor in Yemen. But today, the problem is not really Saudi. The problem is the other side, which now is in a way winning. They see that the U.S. is unwilling to support. It sees Saudi as being in a very difficult spot, having paid a massive political and reputational cost. So every incentive to push. Same thing with the Iranians in the region. Of course, the Iranians are not winning the region as in they're controlling everything, but they're enough in control in all these capitals in the northern Middle East, and they've been quite successful. And who pays the price for that? The societies in the region. Given what you've seen the U.S. able to do, you said the U.S. is often incompetent. You suggested the U.S. has a role constraining Iran's efforts to put its fingers into the politics of a whole range of countries in the region. You've noted that when the U.S. has done that, it's often stumbled because it, it oversimplifies the way politics work. It gets tied to domestic actors and doesn't understand the implications of it. Not to, to boil this down to Lebanon, but in Lebanon, where you're from, the Iranians have been very successful having a large role in domestic politics, and the U.S. has been trying to calibrate pushing Lebanon toward reforms, pushing Lebanon toward a way that constrains Hezbollah's role, the Iranian ally in Lebanon. How does all this play out? What's the outcome if the U.S. is idealistic and naive and incompetent and powerful 
and has an interest in pushing back against Iran. What do you end up with other than a model? Let's look at Lebanon, which is one of the least strategically important countries in the region at this point, although many Lebanese like to think otherwise. Lebanon for me is the good example where the U.S. certainly is not the the main party to state failure. American support for Lebanese armed forces has been consistent and it's the main pillar of U.S. engagement. But in the past decade, it was probably the only real track with Lebanon. There was no real attention in Washington to governance or reform issues because the objective was keep Lebanon stable while Syria was burning. So it was a pure containment strategy. There was no U.S. policy on Lebanon. It was a U.S. policy on Syria, containment, and Lebanon was a subset of that. I think there were opportunities for the U.S. to push more, to be harder. I think today things are at such a dire strait that I can't fault Washington for having a minimalist approach to the problem. Just let's make sure that this thing doesn't get too unstable, that it doesn't export too many economic migrants and refugees, and that it doesn't collapse and send refugees abroad. And the goal of checking Iran, which I think could have been met earlier, is now unattainable. Hezbollah is a dominant player, and Hezbollah is going to be essentially holding the fortunes of that country. It will be domestic and regional dynamics that can constrain Hezbollah or not. I don't think the U.S. itself can have this role anymore. I don't use Lebanon as an example of success or failure of U.S. policy, just because I think it's peripheral. And by the way, when I say incompetent, I want to be clear that the U.S. has so many more instruments of power than just its military engagement. The problem with the Americans is sometimes the way they do things. But put this aside. When I ask people in the region who tell me about China and Russia, ask them, would you get healthcare in China or Russia? Would you send your kids to university there? Have you bought real estate for your holidays there? Or are you putting your savings in those countries? The answer is usually no. Of course, appeal is not necessarily power or influence, but we have to understand that in the Middle East, there's still an appreciation for the U.S., for its strengths, for its innovation, for its higher education, for the dynamism and diversity of the society. That is a plus net for the U.S. You would need the U.S. to be a very dysfunctional country to really lose that edge at this point. That doesn't necessarily always translate into greater confidence in the U.S. as a security actor. But I go back to the point. It's very hard to see the Chinese and the Russians deploying forces in the region the way the U.S. did in 1990-1991. What is the greater purpose? Is it trying to reorder the region or order the region? Or is it just managing problems so that they don't grow too problematic? And that's where I have some unease with the Biden focus on counterterrorism and nuclear diplomacy with Iran, because so much more needs to be done. And my fear is that if they get these two things right, which would be a good thing, they'll say, okay, you know what, then we can offload the rest of the problems of the region. Noor Chakayim, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you. Next up, John, Natasha, and I speak about competing perspectives of the United States in the Middle East. So Emil talked about two different perspectives on the United States in the Middle East. 
one, a public perception that the United States is a great place to emigrate to, to go for education or to invest in. The other, that the United States is powerful, but sloppy, inconsistent, and incompetent with its foreign policy. Does that widespread admiration of the United States as a place to live or to be buy us any slack or leeway in how countries in the Middle East evaluate us as a potential strategic ally or partner? You know, I think one way people have talked about this sometimes is people like America, they don't like the American government. There's certainly that going on. But there's also distinction between liking something and thinking it's useful. And, and one of the points that Emil made time and time again, there's not really an alternative to relying on the U.S. government for many of these things. And so you're left with what you're left with. I think also, though, one can't really rest on their laurels in terms of the U.S. is a great place to be. I think otherwise Jamaica would probably be you know, the great power of the world. But also you can start to see soft power from China and Russia towards the Middle East expanding to a certain degree. I chatted with an Iranian researcher in Europe a few months ago, and when President Trump's travel ban was put into force, it was interesting because you saw China telling doctoral candidates and college students, if you had received entry into a U.S. university, for example, and now you can't go, you can receive a full scholarship here and study in China. Likewise, with Russia, there's a lot of people going to Russia now because it's just easier to get visas. We even did a couple of podcasts on Russian soft power through education. Now, this is a, a very slow cultural process and it's very gradual, but I don't think it's completely unheard of for those shifts to start to occur. And, you know, in many ways, the issue is not does everybody want to come to the United States? Because without question, everybody doesn't want to come to the United States. A lot of the most elite people do want to come to the United States and the, the super elite in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, tends to be US oriented. But among large parts of the population, there are reasons people would want to go somewhere else. People would feel the only alternative they have is to go somewhere else. There are great opportunities to go somewhere else. They feel more culturally comfortable going somewhere else. We get a little too comfortable about the idea that everybody wants to come to the United States. And in my experience, there are a lot of reasons why everybody doesn't want to come to the United States, but a certain group of people do. And that gets us a certain amount of credit. It doesn't make up for some of the reservations that large, large, large portions of many of these societies have about the U.S. government. And many of them have about U.S. culture, having looked at U.S. culture on television. To add to that point, the first time I started to see this shift was actually during the global financial crisis. I was in Iraq at the time. And at the time, a lot of Iraqis did want to come to the United States. They wanted to leave. But they sort of whispered to each other, the U.S. is not a good place to go right now. It's economically unstable. It's difficult to get job opportunities there. When we saw this recent migrant crisis, refugee crisis from the Middle East as well, a lot of people wanted to go to Europe over the United States. Oftentimes they didn't have a choice in the matter, but Europe was also offering benefits that the U.S. simply doesn't provide, making resettlement a little bit harder, at least at the front end. So I think that these things can start to shift. I wonder, though, if thinking in terms of 
do people want to go to the United States or somewhere else is focusing too much on elites. I wonder if there's some value or some significance to a substantial portion of the population having a rosy view of the United States, even if it's not the portion of the population that's making all the decisions at the senior level. Yeah, it gets you some things, but it seems to me that in most countries in the Middle East, the U.S. government is tied to the idea of reinforcing the status quo. And if you don't like the status quo, the people you point your fingers at are in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that on the Arab street, and by the Arab street, I mean my family and friends, there's always been antipathy towards U.S. foreign policy, right, from the Israel-Palestine issue to the Iraq war to many, many other things. But I think what's interesting is that even throughout all of this, When I saw the start of the Syrian revolution, for example, Syrians were looking to the United States to do something to stop the war crimes. And I was actually quite surprised by that because when push came to shove, it was still the U.S. that they looked to. They weren't looking to Russia and China to save them. And I thought that that was quite interesting. I think that there's been a lot of missed opportunities in that regard throughout the region, things that could have been to the benefit of people on the ground and could have been to the benefit of national security policy in the United States. But it'll be interesting to see after the pullout from Afghanistan, what's happened in Syria, and the eventual pivot to Asia, how that will play out on the street as well. Are these two different views of the United States, one, a positive view as a powerful but bumbling geostrategic player, and the other view as an admirable society? Are they inseparable That is to say, if the United States withdraws from a presence in the Middle East and ceases to be a dominant military power in the region, does that diminish its luster or desirability as a destination for immigration and investment? First, it's important that there are different groups that have different levels of admiration. A lot of people probably have conflicted views within themselves about the United States, but overall, there's a sense that A, it's a place with a fair amount of freedom, and B, it's a place with a fair amount of opportunity. I think that gets us in the door with governments, partly because we're tremendously wealthy and partly because the U.S. bureaucracy is relatively effective at doing things that very few other countries are able to do. But I think that this sense that the United States is responsible for everything in the Middle East. The U.S. is responsible for the status quo. The U.S. is to blame for everything. I think certainly the Biden administration wants to move away from that. I think we will move away from it. The U.S. can't do everything it wants to do. Many things it wants to do, it's unable to do effectively. And we saw that in the Afghanistan withdrawal. I think we're likely to see a less passionate view of the United States. And I would imagine that some of that is is going to be less admiration, but also some of it will be a little less hatred. I think what's interesting is over the past few years, having covered the Middle East, oftentimes people in the region, people throughout the world think that mistakes or blunders like the Afghanistan withdrawal, many, many others, the Iraq war and how that played out is all part of the plan, right? It's not mistakes. It's not because of bureaucracy. It's not because of incompetence. It's all part of some master plan that the U.S. has in mind. And I think that 
when you have mistakes, the U.S. needs to, to figure out a way to ingratiate itself back with those kinds of populations so that they don't feel like this is part of some overarching strategy in the region or elsewhere where there's sort of evil intentions or they're just trying to get oil, because certainly that's not the case. And I think what's interesting, again, back to Syria, was that when President Trump decided that he was going to withdraw from Northeast Syria, or at least he said it in a tweet, he was brought back into the fold by saying, we don't want to leave the oil, even though it's ridiculous to think that the United States would be in Syria for its insignificant oil. So I think that there needs to be a continuous dialogue with people in the Middle East so that they understand intentions moving forward to reduce the kind of ill will that is created when there are blunders and there are mistakes. So John, taking your point that we can't assume there's this universal love for the United States, to the extent a admiration of what it stands for exists, aside from our public diplomacy efforts that exist already in embassies around the region, can the United States do a better job leveraging the positive will that it does have for the United States as a society towards its foreign policy objectives in the Middle East? I think in many ways, the U.S. government is, is one of the least powerful forces to shape people's impressions of the United States. We have a huge entertainment industry, which is unregulated. We have a huge technology industry, which is largely unregulated. We have a business community, which is largely unregulated. There's an educational universe of people going back and forth. In many ways, part of the strength of the United States is that the government isn't the driving force in this society, as it is in many Middle Eastern societies. And in some ways, I think the government has to think more creatively about ways to partly lead, partly encourage, partly incentivize, but partly also unleash some of these non-governmental organizations to communicate the complexity of the United States. Not that everything we do is good, but that there really are tremendous advantages that come from our complicated, flawed, but always seeking to improve system. And to me, if there's a secret ingredient to the United States, it's accepting the idea that everything not only can be better, but needs to be better, which I think differentiates us from almost any country in the world. And the other thing that differentiates us, which is a key differentiator in the Middle East, is this idea that you don't have to be from here to belong here. And for countries like the UK and France, where coming over in the last 400 years makes you a, an interloper, for the United States, we've had tremendous assimilation of people from all over the world who feel fully American. And I think that's a key point of advantage over anywhere else in the world. And the reality is you have a Jordanian American community in the United States. You have a Czech American community, an Uzbek American community. You have everything here. And most countries not only don't have that, they'll, they will never have that. And that gives people something to relate to. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. 
Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.